Second Peter chapter two. Second Peter chapter two. I would like to try to finish this chapter so we could finish the book today. Last week we looked at three verses, three very important verses in Second Peter chapter two, and it has to do with prophecy. And it has to do with prophets. There are two kinds of prophets in the world, and there has always been, and those are the good ones and the false ones. And now the Apostle Peter is trying to remind the people of Israel that their false prophets are going to show up, and as they have constantly showed up in the past, and they will show up again in the future. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with fainted words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And spare not the old world, but save Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after shall live ungodly, and deliver just lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man... Dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with her unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. And then when you begin with verse 10, you go pretty well toward the end there to about verse 18 or 19, you will see the characteristic features of these false teachers, and it would amaze you to see how God likens them and how, what he sees in them. Now, we know that uh, there's not enough difference made in Christendom today between Peter's writings and Paul's writings, but God has made a difference. And uh, there is a blending together of these two writings, Paul's writings and Peter's writings and James and so on, as though all of the books after Acts chapter 1 verse 1 belong to the church, and that's not true. And the sooner we find it out, the better I believe. I would like you to go back, please, to the book of Galatians chapter 2, scripture that came to me while sitting here on the front bench this morning. Galatians chapter 2. We have Peter and Paul mentioned in one verse, and I think it's very striking that God has told us something about the two. In this particular verse, which is not acknowledged by many today in Christendom, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Now we find two gospels written in this particular verse, the gospel of the uncircumcision and the gospel of the circumcision. We find that Paul is connected with the gospel of the uncircumcision, but Peter is connected and all the other Hebrew apostles. They are connected with the gospel of the circumcision. Now, they want to tell us these days, Christendom would like to tell us these days, that there's no difference in the gospel because I read a commentary just on these two verses uh, yesterday 
And in that commentary it says, now God doesn't want you to come to the conclusion that there is, uh, that the gospel which they had was not the same. And it is the same, it is not the same rather. We find that the gospel of the circumcision was the gospel uh, of the kingdom. And the gospel of the uncircumcision, I hope I got that right now, the gospel of the uncircumcision was uh, the gospel of God's grace opening up the doors of a new dispensation of grace through the Apostle Paul's ministry. And Peter was not given that privilege. And so we find that they want to try to straighten our thinking out by telling us that this does not mean that their gospel was not the same. And the gospel was not the same. We find that, uh, we, we find that uh, one was the gospel of God's grace and the other one, one was the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the sooner we find that out, the better, because that would help us to realize that when the apostle Peter is giving some uh, word concerning prophecy and false prophets, uh, to the people he is writing to the people of Israel and it's to the Hebrew church that these particular words are intended to be accepted and uh, we find that as far as Paul is concerned he will tell us the future of the church the body of Christ whereas it's the apostle Peter's place to tell us the future of uh, the Hebrew church uh, those people who had uh, accepted Christ at Pentecost, accepting the Apostle Peter's message of the amnesty. Now, a prop this uh, particular portion of Scripture that we have here is a prophecy that concerns Israel, not the body church. You'll have to remember that. You'll have to make a difference between Peter's ministry and Paul's ministry all the way throughout the epistles. We thank God that God has not remained silent as far as Israel is concerned, simply because he turned his back on them in Acts chapter 28 and verse 28. God has not remained silent about their future. While he is not recognizing them as a nation today, they will be a nation in the coming day. And God is going to see a wonderful thing happen among the people of Israel, and that is that they will be gathered by the Lord Jesus Christ, Israel's shepherd. They will be gathered by him out of all the nations into which they have been dispersed. They are dispersed in all the nations under heaven today, but they are going to be gathered out of those nations in the coming day. Not during the church period, because that has nothing to do with the church program. But when Israel gets back on the main line again, and while, we might, while we're saying that, we might say that the church today is on the main line, while Israel as a nation has been sidetracked. And when, Israel, when the church runs through to its final course, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rapture us to be with himself, then God will bring the nation of Israel off the sidetrack and put them on the main line again. And God's dealings with that nation will begin. And that's what makes the Bible an understandable book. We had a couple of letters received this week from those who receive our tapes, and we find that they just rejoice in the fact that the Bible has become a new book to uh, these people who have been introduced to the word rightly divided. Things begin to make sense to them. And I know there's a lot of things that never did make any sense when I was preaching the usual thing before God opened my eyes to see the rightly divided word. And uh, it's necessary if we want to get the most out of God's word that we see that God has two callings he, there are two destinies, in fact there are three destinies, we find heaven and earth and we find the city of Jerusalem which comes down from God out of heaven, 
that's going to be peopled by a people. So there are three destinies. And a lot of people think that God has always promised heaven to anybody that got saved back in the Old Testament times and in these days and in the future. And that's not true at all. God has a heaven and an earth before him. And we thank God that God intends to people heaven with a redeemed company and he intends to people the earth with a redeemed company. But that earth that's going to be the habitation of a redeemed company is called the new earth in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation because there shall be a new earth and there shall be a new heaven. And that's what we have in this too if you want to read the whole chapter all the way through which would pay uh, you some great spiritual dividends I think. Read the whole chapter through and you will enjoy seeing what the Apostle Peter has to bring before them. Now, the Lord has uh, within the last 30 years of this particular writing purchased redemption for them, the people of Israel. We thank God he has purchased redemption through the Apostle Paul's widened ministry or broadened ministry for the whole world as such. And we thank God for that. But here the Apostle Peter is talking about the people of Israel as a nation. Do you notice it says in verse 1, chapter 2, and uh, uh, the very last statement from the last comma, it says, even denying the Lord that bought them. Every person that dies and goes into a Christless eternity has been purchased by the blood of the cross. Christ has died for their redemption. A redemption has been accomplished for every man. But it's left up to the individual to receive that redemption as a free gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The purchase price has included every man, woman, and child that was ever born before the death of Christ and since the death of Christ. And these people who have been denying re redemption are denying a redemption that's been purchased for them. They have been bought, and it's very clearly stated here, even denying the Lord that bought them. Now these are unsaved people. And we can clearly and distinctly preach throughout the world today that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, bought every man, woman, and child of Adam's family by going to the cross and paying with the price of his own precious blood the price of our redemption. But it's ours to accept that redemption, and therefore it is to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. There is no reason why a person could not be saved today. We know a lot of people have raised the question of uh, election unto salvation. They say that you have to be elect, uh, uh, an elect person elected by God from before the foundation of the world before you will even have the uh, desire to be saved and to be redeemed. And that is not true. We thank God that in this particular verse as well as in John 3.16 and many, many other passages of scriptures. Christ died for all. And we read of that too in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that died for them and rose again. Now we find that they had been that particular nation to whom Christ came. That is the nation of Israel. These Hebrews belonged to a nation to, to which Christ came, when he came into the world 2,000 years ago. And because of national apostasy, and it was really national, all you have to do is read your Old Testament scriptures and the prophets and the historical books, and you will find that a national apostasy took over uh, among the people of Israel. 
And in that national apostasy, when Christ did come into the world, he was neither recognized by them or received by them. And uh, they, they said many things that were harmful to his reputation, we might say, and they did not recognize him. They did not accept his signs and wonders and divers, miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost as evidences of his deity at all. And this was the shame of that nation of Israel. And this is one reason why the Apostle Peter had to approach them as a nation and only them as a nation at Pentecost, barring all Gentiles because the message could not go to the Gentiles according to prophecy until the nation of Israel had accepted the amnesty. And then with that message of the resurrection of uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, they continued to reject the Lord Jesus Christ until God had to turn his back upon them at the close of the book of Acts. Now, during the Old Testament times, the nation of Israel was saturated with false prophets and they were posing all the time as spiritual leaders and teachers. And they sought to control or counter, counteract rather God's message also through the Apostle Peter. There were false prophets living in that day. How do you suppose that the vast majority of the millions of the people of Israel uh, just turn away from uh, the message of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as given by the Apostle Peter. Only a handful came to Christ. You read of 3,000 and 5,000. What are they among the millions of Israel? And so the vast majority were governed and controlled by false teachers who also had the power probably to work signs and wonders and that power would be given to them by the evil one. When you listen to certain things going on in the religious world today, which might indicate that there is a supernatural work at, at uh, supernatural events at work in the religious world. Oh, don't forget that there are two sources of supernatural power. One is Satan and the other one is God himself. We read from a scripture in Revelation chapter 13 last week that shows you the tremendous power false prophets will have along with the Antichrist in the coming times of tribulation in order that the people of Israel might have their eyes closed to the identity of the man who would soon come among them in order to be uh, made their king. And we find that because of the, uh, of the trickery on the part of Satan and the signs and wonders that he is able to work through his, his uh, dupes, we find that uh, 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 many of the people of Israel will fail to believe in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll have something to say about that tonight. In this second chapter, you will find that there is one thing denied by these people, and that is redemption. And tonight we are going to see that there is a second thing that's being denied, and that will be the denial of a coming day. And I'm quite sure it was also a denial in the day of, of the Apostle Peter when he was here in this world. Now many would be caused to follow their evil ways, that is the evil ways of these false teachers, and be influenced by them to the point where they would even speak evil of the way of truth. That's what you have in verse 2. The way of truth would be evil spoken of by those who are brought under the influence of these false uh, prophets. Now that's how these lying wonders are accepted by the masses 
And even in Christendom today, we find more people who are unsaved in spite of their church memberships and their baptisms. They are more unsaved than they are saved in Christendom. And yet all professing to be a member of this or that or having uh, passed through certain ordinances not only once but sometimes twice and three times. But that will never say. That only shows how the heart is bent away from the message of grace and in the direction of salvation by works. They want to do this and that and the other thing, but God says, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now these false prophets, I believe you might say, were the hired clergy of their day. Now that doesn't mean all hired clergy are false prophets, but they were hired in that day. When you look at verse 3 of this, of this chapter, it says, And through covetousness, now that word covetousness shows that there is a price that's offered to them. There is a reward given to them to be the false prophets that they were willing to become. These false prophets were the higher clergy of their day. They were undoubtedly on the payroll. And there's no doubt about that at all. Making good money and yet avoiding the truth and God uh, likened them a little later on in Second Peter chapter 2 to Balaam who was a false prophet in the Old Testament times but was offered a big reward by Balak, a Gentile king, if, they would only, if he would get them, uh, Balaam, just to speak against the people of Israel and curse them instead of blessing them. And uh, he was, his eyes were full of covetousness too. And we find that he was finally rebuked by a donkey that spoke to him with a language, with a voice of a man. And the donkey upon which he sat undoubtedly turned around and spoke to the king, well, or to Balaam rather, the false prophet. And uh, some things uh, have to take place almost uh, uh, with such tremendous uh, power from the outside in order to convince a false prophet that he is a false prophet. And that's what God had to do back in those days. Now a lot of people look at that nothing else but a piece of fantasy. They say imagine a donkey speaking with man's voice and, and uh, speaking to this prophet to show him what a fool he was. Impossible. But remember that when we're dealing with God nothing is impossible. He can create a voice out of a stone like the Lord Jesus said then would the stones cry out and uh, the stones could cry out if God would uh, have it that way. Now, it is a matter of record, we know, that all such false prophets will be judged, and all of those who fall in line with the message of the false uh, prophets. Apostasy and unbelief. According to this particular chapter, apostasy and unbelief among the privileged, and the people of Israel were the privileged, brings in its wake all kinds of immoralities. And therefore, I want to read to you just a few uh, sentences or phrases that we get in several verses following and including verse 10. In verse 10 you have this, the lust of uncleanness, presumptuous, self-willed. That's what these false prophets are. In verse 12, natural brute beasts, corruption, uh, the word corruption also. As brute beasts, we know that the brute beasts, according to that verse in verse 12, they're made to be slaughtered. And these people have one thing ahead of them, and that is certain judgment at the hand of God. Verse 14, you read of eyes full of adultery, covetous, cursed. And verse 15, it says, uh, it tells us that they are willing to perpetuate a lie for profit. Once again, the thought of money, wages, or 
something given to them. Verse 17, they are called wells without water, clouds in the tempest. You know, it's a strange thing today. You can go to the average church and find a well without water in the form of the reverend that's in the platform. You get very little food for your soul in the average church today. Think of all of the denominations that call themselves Christians and they are baptizing and they are making church members. And yet when you go there and ask yourself the question, have you received anything at all that's scripturally correct? Have you received anything that would cause you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? And you would have to liken many of them, not all of them, and we thank God for that. There are still fundamental preachers in the world today who are not wells without water or clouds without water. And then they are likened to clouds in a tempest. Now clouds in a tempest uh, change shape uh, while the tempest is blowing. And you can look into the sky sometimes when the clouds are going by at a fast rate of speed and there seems to be tornado signs around and you will see that these clouds don't remain in the same shape and they change uh, very quickly because of the speed of the wind that's controlling them. And these are under the guiding winds, we might say, of Satan and of falsehood and uh, we find that their faces change and... uh, Uh, They don't remain the same and their image seems to change uh, while they are in the the pulpit. Verse 18, beguiling the wavering among them with the language and verbiage of of the overeducated of today. In verse 19, promising a form of liberty while they themselves were bound by a more insidious form of bondage. And how can anyone promise liberty to those who are in bondage to themselves? Verse 20, having received a bit of knowledge of what Christ is offering in the proffered amnesty, they chose to reject it. And that's what we have here. All of these show the characteristics of those who are offering false prophecies, saying the wrong thing, denying the truth, manufacturing something that appears to be scriptural but is not. There are a lot of people who are today taking verses of scripture and not looking at it according to their context, taking out of it whatever they want to. And one denomination is built on one verse and another denomination is built on another verse. They are all very scriptural according to them. And they all read their Bibles and they all quote the scripture and preach from the scripture. But what they get from it is vastly different than what uh, the next church might get from it. And therefore every man is doing seemingly what's right in their own eyes. There seems to be no consistency today with the Word of God. And therefore you can go from place to place and find difference of opinions, difference of understandings, and you have to search the Scriptures like the Bereans to see whether these things are so. God leaves the responsibility up to you. You don't have to complain about false preachers today or false teachers or false prophets because you have to search the scripture yourself and when you do that rightly divided you'll be able to come to a knowledge of the truth now in order to punctuate the prophecy that the apostle Peter was giving about these false teachers who were in the nation of Israel prior to the coming of the Lord who were among them while Peter was preaching the amnesty and who would be among them who will be among them in the future after the church program is removed We find that Peter, in order to punctuate the true meaning of the prophecy, he has to bring to mind from the inspired word of God uh, that God knows how to preserve the wicked for the day of judgment. 
And this is also being denied by many who call themselves fundamentalists today. You know, you read about people who are universalists. They believe that eventually every man, woman, and child in the world, after a certain amount of uh, imprisonment in hell or the lake of fire, will be released because their sins will have been atoned for by their particular judgment. And some go as far as to say that the day is coming when Satan himself will be released uh, from his place of of uh, his place in the lake of fire. And then we find that there are a lot of people that will tell us a lot of things about the wicked. We know that there are people who claim to be uh, people who rightly divide the word who will go as far as to say that there is no resurrection for the unsaved dead. And that is a very serious thing. No resurrection for the unsaved dead. So all that the unsaved dead that are in this particular cemetery will not rise from the dead at all. There is no judgment for them. And there is no afterlife for them because they have ceased to exist the day that they died as unsaved people. And this is far from being the truth. Now, when the Apostle Paul wants to punctuate what he says to emphasize the truth of it, He shows that both angels and men are now and have been confined in the darkness of hell for some 6,000 years from the time the first unsaved person died in his sins. They are in a lost eternity. You get that very clearly in 2 Peter chapter 2. And we find that those in this particular case, uh, you have, let's see... uh, Uh, Where is that? I was looking for the place where it speaks of hell. Well, it'll, if you see it, verse... All right, for if God spared not the, uh, the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Now, get the full force of this. When an individual dies unsaved, his spirit separates from the body. We take care of the body and put it into the grave and sometimes mistakenly pronounce the person as one who has accepted Christ as Savior because there's so much false profession today. You hardly attend a a funeral service of an unconverted person. But we find that the soul separates or the spirit separates from the body. We find that that soul goes into a Christless eternity. It is absent from the body and present in hell. Now there's no uh, death in hell as far as that's concerned. That's a living spirit that went down there. And the spirit does not die. And those spirits that went into the grave, into the uh, hell, all the way back from the very beginning of a hell, 6,000 years ago as far as human history is concerned, they are still there suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Because uh, the scripture plainly tells us that, that hell is a place where the worm dieth not, neither is the fire quenched. It's beyond the imagination of man to accept this as being true because he doesn't believe in divine inspiration. He doesn't like to think that God is so ugly and hates people to such an extent that he would cause 6,000 years of suffering in a Christless hell for all eternity for those 6,000 years, and then to impose that penalty upon the individual, not in hell, but in the lake of fire. 
For the time is coming when death, that is the grave, and hell, the receptacle of the lost spirit, we find both will be joined together at resurrection and both will be cast into the lake of fire and the lake of fire is the penitentiary whereas we might say hell would be more or less likened to the county jail. I hope you get that figure because it's very clear that hell is not the permanent place but the lake of fire is the permanent place. Now fallen angels are being preserved in darkness as well as the world before the flood who per which perished in the flood. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were reduced to ashes, but as eternal spirits, we find they are also reserved unto the day of judgment. They are alive as far as the spirit is concerned. And if you want to read about their being alive, you look at Luke chapter 16 sometime and read that through, and you will see how that in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. And that shows you the consciousness of those who depart this life and go to hell. We don't like to speak about these words. We know that Satan has has blemished the truth uh, that uh, souls do go into hell and are confined there until a future resurrection. He has made it, so, made it so loosely accepted today that most anybody these days, and especially on television, and you have heard your boss perhaps say the same words, and he'll tell you where to go, and then hell is being used uh, in that statement. Hell is used so loosely today by the masses of the unsaved that we lose the pressure or we lose the real true meaning of it being a prison house until the time of resurrection which will take place in the future. Now these records of divine inspiration are meant to be present day reminders that man never ceases to exist before God and never will cease to exist. I myself will never die. My body may die but I will not die. I will be a living spirit and I will continue to be a living spirit, but thank God through the grace of God and the salvation which we have in Christ and which I have accepted by receiving Christ as my Savior, my, uh, the place of my departed spirit will not be hell, but it will be with Christ in glory. And that's true of all those who are saved by the grace of God. And those spirits will be reserved unto a coming judgment when they will be given rewards for what they have done since the day that they were saved by the grace of God. And that's a wonderful thing to think of. They will never be judged penally for their sin. We might have our mistakes and some sins brought up and some things that we did not want to straighten out in this world, but for those things we are going to lose a reward, but not eternal life, and we're grateful to God for that. I want you to look with me again at a scripture in Revelation chapter 20 that we had some time ago, not too long ago, but in this connection I think we ought to read it again. Revelation chapter 20 at verse 12. Remember, this is the inspired word of God. This is not manufactured by man. And we got to take this as the truth. If you want the truth about anything, and if it's a subject in the Bible, read the Bible and get the truth. And always remember that you can get it rightly divided. Verse 12 of Revelation 20 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books and according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell, that is the grave, mother earth, 
and held the receptacle of the departed spirit delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to their works and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire and not one soul at that particular judgment because this is the judgment of the great white throne according to verse 11 not one soul at that great white throne judgment will be an unsaved person this is reserved only for those who are unsaved not a saved person will be at that judgment in a coming day and only the unsaved and uh, therefore when we consider how serious a matter it is this wonderful redemption that God has provided and to think that he has died for all, he has paid redemption for all, and if we don't have it as individuals, it's only because we refuse to accept it as a free gift. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. You've got to accept it as a free gift. To him that worketh not, Romans chapter 4, 4 verse 5 says, To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted unto him for righteousness. This eternal life can be the possession of every man, woman, and child of Adam's family. But the majority would rather listen to the false prophets and rather degrade, would rather degrade the work of Christ on the cross than to accept it. We are approaching a holiday period and it's possible that we become carried away with the pageantry of Christmas. There's something about Christmas that's false. And we see it carried out in its pageantry all around us. We find that even the gift exchanging as far as that's concerned, which is a wonderful thing, and I would not put a quietus on that at all. I think it's wonderful to express it. But you know, at the time of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gifts were given to one person, and that's the Lord Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing. There was a time in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where gifts were exchanged, but that was because... It was done by unsaved people who were so glad to get rid of the two witnesses that God had sent into the world that they put them to death and they laid uh, out there on the streets for three days and three nights without uh, resurrecting from the dead. But at the end of three days they did rise. And uh, we find that they were so happy that they had a real good time and they gave gifts among themselves. I'm not saying this to, to throw any cold water on the idea of gifts, but let us remember that the chief reason behind the word gift is that we present to the Lord Jesus something that would honor and glorify Him. So while you're gift-giving, don't forget the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we've got to go beyond the babe at Bethlehem in this Christmas period. You know, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, and being... Uh, found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So the whole objective was not to be born, the whole objective was to be born to die. And without that death, nothing could be accomplished for us for all eternity. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Don't be taken up with the birth while denying his purchase of your redemption. And hundreds of thousands and millions of people in the United States of America will enter wholeheartedly into this Christmas season without even knowing the Savior and they will die. And in hell they will lift up their eyes being in torments. 
and they would all like to plead the fact, you know, we remembered your birth when it was brought about once every year. We don't even know the date of his birth. December 25 is not the day that Jesus was born. We have simply agreed that that would be a day that would be that would be a, a good reminder of that event. But we don't know the time of his birth. We do know one thing, and that God has never placed upon Christendom the responsibility of remembering his birth, but he has placed upon them the responsibility of remembering his death. This do in remembrance of me. So let's be careful with it all. Let's not go too far. And let's give him his rightful place. Now let Christians, let the unsaved people know why you are remembering the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers are never requested to remember, believers are requested rather to remember his death. And that's what we do here once every month. Uh, now your Christmas can be a lot merrier, we know, by simply not only knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as the babe in Bethlehem, but by also knowing him as the Christ of the cross, the one who has paid for our redemption. We trust that every one of us here this morning knows something of having that experience in our life, of having accepted Christ as personal Savior. My wife has sung a song here some time ago about the babe and uh, his death on the cross and so on, and I just want to leave four lines of that particular song with you. The babe left the manger and went to the cross to pay the wages of sin. Your way of forgiveness is not by the babe. We have to remember that. But the Christ who died for your sin. So we thank God for the fact that the Lord Jesus went farther than Bethlehem. That he went beyond becoming a babe. He matured and became a man. And at the, 30, at the age of 33 and a half years, he died. The just for us, the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Let's not forget the cross as we anticipate next Sunday the accepted birthday of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot more to Christmas than what appears on the surface. So may the Lord bless his word to each one of us this morning for his name's sake. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 1 This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. <clears throat> Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Then over at verse 15, please, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us this evening. 
Here we have the same idea of prophecy concerning false prophets, but in chapter 2 we have false prophets in the Old Testament times, and then the day of the Apostle Peter some 2,000 years ago. Now in chapter 3 we've got it more or less in relation to the future when false prophets are going to abound and work in complete harmony with the uh, Antichrist and it will be in order to confuse the Jewish people to keep keep them from uh, accepting the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of his return. And therefore we find that the return of our Lord Jesus Christ is the truth that's questioned here. We noticed the, this morning that in chapter 2 it's, to, it's the truth of the purchase of every man, woman, and child, the purchase of redemption made by our Lord Jesus Christ that is reviled and set at naught. But in this chapter it happens to be the promise of his coming. Now I know that there are certain things that we are warned of in the Apostle Paul's epistles and they have to do of course also with the coming of Christ and also with the delusion of uh, uh, the gospel of God's grace and satanic manipulation of that marvelous gospel by which we are saved. But we find that his prophecy is for the churches, the uh, uh, the body church, and we find that this particular prophecy is not exactly the same, although it covers somewhat uh, the same subjects. Uh, because in either case, whatever is precious in the sight of God, and one thing we do know is that is our redemption is precious before him. The Bible says that the redemption of the soul is precious and it ceaseth forever. And then we know it's a precious thing to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming, but he's coming for us happens to be concerning the day of Christ, but the coming here is not the day of Christ, as you noticed, but it is the day of the Lord. And uh, there's a big difference between the two. And that links, the day of the Lord links this particular message up with the Hebrew church and not with the church which is his body. There are so many little watermarks or trademarks throughout this epistle that is foolish to come to the conclusion that Peter and Paul had the same message and they are speaking to the same groups of people, for that's not true at all. We find that you cannot put the church, which is his body, into these epistles because we find Paul's, Peter's uh, reflection of Paul's prophets going back into Old Testament times and to his day, which has nothing to do with the church, which is his body, and we do know that the last days that are mentioned here in this chapter are the last days of the Hebrew church and not the last days of the Gentile church. And we know that the last days of the Gentile church is given to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 where the Apostle Paul mentions these last days. So remember that this chapter has to do with the future, chapter 2 has to do with the past. And that's good for us to remember as we look, by, look through these scriptures. Now, as far as Israel is concerned, at the time that the Apostle Peter is writing this, we might say that for Israel, time is slipping by. They don't have very much time. It's already been revealed to the Apostle Peter in his first epistle to these Hebrew uh, people that uh, there's going to be quite a catastrophe coming soon upon them, and that happens to be a prophecy concerning 70 A.D., which is only about 10 years off, mind you, from the time of this writing if we have a pretty fair idea as the chronology of these books. Now, it's been some 30 years or so since the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and 
and ministered the word for three and a half years and opened his messages, we might say with the words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the kingdom of heaven in the gospel by Matthew happens to be the kingdom that's going to be set up on the earth but controlled by heavenly beings. And that first being, we might say, is the, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then the second one, we might say, is the Holy Spirit of God. And we find that it's going to be a kingdom of heaven set up on this earth, which we commonly call the uh, millennial reign. And throughout Matthew's gospel, we find various characteristics of the millennial reign. And we find how these people are told to live in view of the millennial reign and during the millennial reign. But a lot of people are so confused with the four gospels that they take care uh, uh, the life-giving advice or the life-sustaining advice uh, that's given to you in the Gospel by Matthew, and they say that that's how we are to live today. We are not to live that way. We are not to live the way the early church of the Hebrews lived in the book of Acts, where they gathered all of their earthly store, their material things, and divided among all of the people, and so everybody had all things in common. We are not expected to live that way at all. And that's the reason why what you read in chapter 2 of the book of Acts in chapter 4 is not the church which is his body, but the Hebrew church. And that church was in existence already in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, and I think chapter 18 and verse 17 of the book of Matthew. The Lord Jesus speaks of it as already being present there. And when the apostle Peter made a confession of the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ by saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lord Jesus said to him, Upon this rock I will build my church. And that church was already in existence. He didn't say he was going to start something new. And we are told by all of the theologians today in Christendom that that means that he prophesied before time that at the proper time he was going to start something new entirely, and that is the church. They never see the Hebrews as representing the church. And yet Stephen knew that they were the church in the wilderness. Now, we should be confused about that word church because it simply means an outgathering. And the people of Israel were gathered out of Egypt and gathered out of the wilderness and so on. And if there ever was a true outgathering of people or assembly of people, it was the Hebrew people. And so they rightfully own the word church and they have a right to it as much as we do today. Now, it's been almost that long, say 30 years or so, uh, from the time that Peter is writing here, since Peter announced in Acts chapter 3 and verse 20, and he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you. So there is a, a, a definite underscoring of the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course his coming would be to set up the kingdom that he spoke about throughout his whole three and a half years of ministry. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, He, that is God the Father, shall send Jesus Christ, uh, which before was preached unto you. So there is a connection between that which was preached before, that which is preached by the Apostle Peter. But it's too bad that Christendom doesn't understand that. Now, he also mentioned that the times of refreshing and the times of restitution were also promised to the people of Israel. And they could plainly see that the times of restitution and the times of refreshing had not come. The people of Israel were the same as they always were. They were not delivered from 
the kingdom of Rome, and they were still servants to them and servitude to them. And there was no sign whatever in Peter's day when he was writing these epistles that the times of refreshing or the times of restitution had come. Peter knew they hadn't come, but now we find that these people are taking that for a good excuse since the Lord Jesus earlier, 30 years prior to this, had said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and Peter had said uh, God will send his son Jesus Christ if you repent and are baptized. They see that there has been no change, and now some extra years have been added on to the, to, to the testimony, and nothing has happened yet. We might say that to the believing and the rebellious, and that's what most of the people of Israel were. You have to get in your mind the character of these people. You remember that it's Isaiah chapter 9 and it's verse 2. We happen to be looking at that this morning at home, where it says, Light, light is come among those who live in darkness, and those who live in darkness were the Hebrew people. Uh, most of us don't understand the awful darkness of the apostasy that uh, overruled the hearts of the people of Israel. They were not in a condition to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, as far as their own personal condition is concerned, that God knew that their condition was such that they did need a Redeemer. They did need light because they were walking in abject darkness. And we find that uh, God sent his son as the light of the world to that nation and not to the nations of the world, but to that nation of Israel. And light came in the form of the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we will, the Lord willing, be celebrating uh, next week. But to the unbelieving and the rebellious of the people of Israel, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That's what we read the, the, uh, just a little while. They said, where is the promise of his coming? In verse 4, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, have any spiritual vision, so they came to conclude that as far as material things were concerned, there was no change. However, there was a great change spiritually. And they didn't even recognize that they were in the state of apostasy that God saw them to be in and the state of spiritual darkness that they were living in, and sorely in need of the light of our Lord Jesus Christ by way of his advent. They felt perfectly justified also at Peter's prolonged, uh, in scoffing at Peter's prolonged uh, message by saying, where is the promise of his coming? It seemed as though God was uh, prolonging the, uh, the promise, the answer to that uh, prophetic word, that uh, God was going to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they felt perfectly justified, and maybe most of us would today, that if we lived under those circumstances, we would say, I don't believe anything in this redemption. I, don't, I, don't, I, I, I believe that as far as this man, Jesus, is concerned, that we took with wicked hands and have crucified and slain, he was just a fake all the way through. They felt justified in saying that because nothing seems to have come true. The coming of the Lord had not taken place. Now remember, this is not a word to the church which is his body concerning those in the world today who pose as preachers, Protestant and otherwise, and the cults. This is not a word to them because of the fact that they today are not looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many denominations in Protestantism who interpret the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as meaning death, for instance. When a person dies, they say that's the Lord's coming. 
And that's a very poor interpretation because it destroys the whole idea of the Lord Jesus Christ coming for us in the clouds of the air and he's doing that in order to escort us through the territory of the enemy because there are spiritual wickednesses in in the heavenlies and the air is full of those spiritual wickednesses. You cannot see them, neither can I, because they are spirit beings and we are men and women in the flesh so we can't see with the eye of a spirit being. And if you had eyes to see it, if you had eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ, you would see the awful condition of things that we will have to pass through when we are raptured up to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the air, and we need an escort no less than the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's one wonderful reason why he's going to come in the clouds of the air, because in the air we find all of these spiritual wickednesses and these spirit beings who, are, who have sold themselves out to Satan, and they are working for your destruction and mine. Now, they know they can't destroy us because they believe in eternal security as much as we do. They believe in it more than a lot of people who profess to be Christians today, but who believe that they can lose their salvation at a moment's time because of a failure of being uh, faithful in their own personal lives. Now, the Apostle Peter again appeals to the word of the Lord here in this chapter. And therefore, in verse 5, it says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God. Now, it's always good to go back to the word of God. The word of God is to be rightly divided, and if you're wrongly divided here, you are going to look at the wrong people who are addressed, and that's how it's generally looked at. I hope you don't think I say that too often, because I cannot overemphasize the fact that you have to know the people to whom the Apostle Peter is addressing himself in order to know who is being spoken to and what is being spoken to about. Now the Apostle Peter appeals again to the Word of God. Here we find that he he talks about Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. You notice in verse 6 it says, "Whereby, Whereby the world that then was. Now let's go back to the last chapter, chapter 2 and verse 5. And there it says, and spare not the old world. Now there's a difference between the old world of chapter 2 and verse 5 and, and, and verse 6, the world that then was in chapter 3 and verse 6. Chapter 2 and verse 5 takes us to the antediluvians who were all drowned in the flood just prior to Noah in Noah's day. And we find that Noah and seven others of his family were saved through the flood that overcame uh, that world at that time. But we find that when we get into Second Peter 3 and verse 5, or verse 6, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store. Now we find that there's been a great change in the creation in the creation of the universe. When you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, and may I say that all believers do not have this particular understanding of this portion of Scripture, but again I say search the Scriptures, for in them you think ye have, they have the uh, life, and uh, they are given to us uh, to give us the proper information here. In chapter 1 and verse 1 of Genesis, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Now that's a wonderful statement. We don't know when the beginning was, but we do know that what God is talking about is the universe. 
It says, and the earth, not the heaven and the earth, but the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now there is a scripture, and I can't go into uh, the argument of this thing at the present time. We don't have time for it. But there is a scripture where it tells us that God did not create the world in vain. He created it to be inhabited. And here we find, right here, the earth was without form. It was formless and it was a void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now what is it that characterizes God? God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. And anything that He is associated with is light. We are children of light. We were once children of darkness, but we are now children of light because, our, because of our association and identification with God and with God's Son who said, I am the light of the world. Before that, we were children of darkness. Now, God did not create the earth to be dark or a void or covered with water. And that's really the sense of verse 2. Look at it again. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now the deep suggests or really implies water. This world of ours was over flooded uh, by a much greater deluge, I believe, than, than you would have to look at that which overtook the antediluvians. God saw that there was sin in this earth of ours introduced by Satan and he had a host of angels that fell with him. In uh, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, you can read it. Uh, again, if you want to, I asked you to read it a couple of weeks ago, but refresh your memory on what it was that God saw when he saw that Satan had determined to set his throne above the throne of God and he was going to usurp the authority of God over this creation of ours. He immediately deposed Satan from his throne and Satan became a creature of the air, we might say, the head of all lost spiritual beings, and as far as the angels were concerned, we find, found out this morning that they are reserved in mists of darkness in a place called hell until a future day when they too will come out of that place as spirits because there are only spirits, they have no bodies. And at the same time that uh, men and women who are also in mists of darkness in hell, when they will come for, forward to uh, stand at the a great white throne judgment that we looked at this morning in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. Now that's what he is talking about here in this sixth verse where it says, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now I almost forgot to bring something out again, one of the little watermarks or the trademarks of this particular book, and that is in verse 2 where it says, that she may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and those are all the prophets of the Old Testament, the major and the minor prophets, of which there are many. And then it says, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now the apostles of the Lord and Savior does not include the apostle Paul. He had a peculiar and a very unique ministry. He was the special apostle for the Gentiles. He was not to be numbered with the twelve. And you find a close harmony between the ministry of the apostles of the Old Testament, or the prophets of the Old Testament times, and the apostles of the circumcision. And that's why he links the two together. Now the apostle Paul can't do that. The apostle Paul never links up the knowledge of his mystery, or the revelation of his mystery with what has been revealed by the prophets. In fact, he goes as far as to say that these things were hidden God from before the foundation of the world. 
and not revealed until the risen Christ, after he had died and been buried and raised again, and took a seat at the Father's right hand, then he spoke to the Apostle Paul and gave him all the revelation concerning the mystery of this particular day that we are passing through. It's a remarkable day. No, the world has never seen one like it. It's a very mysterious time because most people don't have an understanding of this dispensation of grace. And only Paul can give you that understanding. And therefore we see perfect harmony in verse 2 between the message of the holy apostles, uh, the holy prophets rather, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. I just wanted to make sure you got that because it's just another one of the earmarks that, that shows you uh, what kind of a message this is that the Apostle Peter is given. Now, the scriptures have prophesied on many occasions that the world shall yet see the day when it will taste a reign of righteousness uh, in a world of imperfection and sin. There's going to be 1,000 years set aside in God's purposes and in his mind when the world will still be the world, but Satan will be bound for a 1,000 years that sin will still be in the hearts of mankind. Sin, uh, men and women during that particular time do not have to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ or accept the gospel of the kingdom because after they have passed through a whole 1,000 years, you will see, according to the book of Revelation, that there will be a real great gathering of those people who have tasted a 1,000 years of the reign of righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will be gathered together to make war against God and against Christ and against the saints. And that will be their last time of retaliating against the Lord Jesus who did nothing but good for a thousand years and they were witnesses to it all. That shows you how our hearts are steeped in sin. And apart from the grace of God, we would just be like those who are ready to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, maybe if we lived 2,000 years ago in the day of the Lord Jesus, we would have been glad to hasten his death when he hung on the cross. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, you have a lovely scripture that supports what I said, that prophecy uh, uh, tells us about a reign of righteousness for a period of time in this imperfect world of ours, although it will not have the help of Satan during that time because he will be found. In Acts 17.31 it says, Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will uh, judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given us assurance in all things in that he hath raised him from the dead. I believe that's just about how it goes. But the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is proof and a definite promise that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to judge now that word judge is not the same word as a judge that sits on the bench. The Lord Jesus Christ will be judge in a coming day, for all judgment is committed unto the Son. But this word judge means to rule, and he's going to be the ruler. It's a different word than the judge on the bench. This means that he's going to rule, and every king on a throne and every uh, person that is ruling today is judging as he rules. And that's in Acts chapter 17, 31. Now, I used to believe when I was a young Christian that, that this was referring to possibly the judgment seat of Christ because it says, because he hath appointed a day when he shall judge the world. But when you take the meaning of the word judge, then you see he's talking about the real promise of the coming of Christ in order to set up his glorious kingdom. 
Now Ezekiel has a wonderful verse of scripture that I think is a wonderful help to understand why there seems to be a postponement of a promise and that is the promise of his coming. And we find that these people were also ignorant of that. And uh, we find that they were ignorant of that and because of their ignorance they felt that they had a right to say where is the promise of his coming. And of course he wasn't coming and he had a reason for it. And we also read two good reasons and that is that he's not willing that any should perish and also in that 15th verse that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Ezekiel chapter 12 and verse 25. You want to have this underlined in your Bible. If you know of a promise that God has not fulfilled in the scripture pertaining to the church, the body of Christ, and you wonder why he's not fulfilling it, this would even help you to understand that, even though this is not written for the church, the body of Christ. It says, For I am the Lord, I will speak, and the word that I shall speak shall come to pass. Now that concerns the coming of Christ. When Peter says who, that uh, he shall send his son, uh, he, he meant exactly what uh, he said, that God would send his son. And yet his son was not sent into the world. He says, I will speak and the word that I shall speak shall come to pass. It shall no more be, uh, it shall be no more prolonged, you see. That's put off. And we find that God has many reasons sometimes to put off a prophecy that he's giving. For in your days, O rebellious house, and of course he's talking to Israel, he says, will I say the word and will perform it, saith the Lord God. All you have to do is wait a little while and God will perform what he said because every word he says he will perform. Now he may have to postpone, and that's the suggestion in the word prolong there. He may have to prolong the days that are involved between the giving of the promise and the execution of the promise but then you can bank on it that where God speaks, it's going to come to pass. And that's a good thing for us to remember too. We're living 2,000 years since the days of the Apostle Paul. And I honestly believe that the Apostle Paul really believed that it was possible for the Lord Jesus Christ to come in his day. When you read the scriptures that the Apostle Paul has written, we find that he doesn't put it off into some unknown future. He talks about the last days in, in the, his writings to Timothy, his son of the faith. But of course, those last days could come in even during the days of the Apostle Paul. When it looked like the last days when he wrote that all they that are in Asia have forsaken me, that would be one of the marks of the last days. There is a picture of apostasy. And that's what we expect in any last days. But the apostasy that Paul saw... And the apostasy that we see is happening in the church, the body of Christ, not the body of Christ, but in Christendom today, is not the apostasy that the Apostle Peter is talking about when he warns these people about days to come. Now God knows that the day of the Lord, you notice the day of the Lord is brought in here. It says in verse day 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heaven shall pass, with a, uh, pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God? So there are two days here. There is the day of the Lord and the day of God. 
Now we are not concerned about the day of the Lord. This definitely marks this epistle as belonging to the Hebrews. When you go to Second Thessalonians now, chapter 2, I want you to see something there, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we find that by the time that our writers of our Bibles by, had translated from what there was of the writings to translate from, they were even confused as to the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. And we have these two days mixed up in chapter 2 and verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering unto him. That's the day of Christ. Will you try to remember that? When Christ comes for the church, the body of Christ, to the air to take us to be with himself, that is the day of Christ. Now the day of the Lord is, is entirely different than that. And we'll talk about that a little later. Verse 2 says that, Ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now there, the day of Christ is verse 1. But they put the day of Christ in verse 2, and that should be the day of the Lord. Can you get that in your mind? What he is actually saying is, uh, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of the Lord is at hand. And the day of the Lord has to do with a public appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ to the people of Israel. Maybe you've got that in your marginal readings, I don't know, or in a footnote. But the day of the Lord belongs there, and I think Schofield carries that out. Verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, what day? The day of the Lord, not the day of Christ. But the day of the Lord shall not come except their coming of falling away first. Never do you find Peter say that the day of Christ will not come unless so and so takes place. Peter says that because he's talking about the day in reference to the, his coming to the people of Israel to set up the millennial reign. And that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Now that man of sin, the son of perdition, is going to be revealed during the time of tribulation. But we're going to be caught up before the time of tribulation. So he's not talking about the day of Christ. He's talking about the day of the Lord. And then it says, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Well, we showed that from Revelation chapter 13 last week. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things, and now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only who now, he who now letteth, and that's the Holy Spirit, will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed. So the day is coming when the Holy Spirit of God is going to be removed, as it were, when the church, the body of Christ, is removed, and that makes room for the revelation of the wicked, uh, the man of sin, uh, or that wicked one, or the Antichrist to come into play. You see, the Antichrist will never come in to do his dirty work and his work of deception, showing signs and wonders and diverse miracles. He will not be able to do that until the church is removed. So you can rest assured you'll never know the meaning of 666 in relation to the church because that number is not in relation to the church. It's in relation to God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Alright, so when we go back to our chapter, it says the day of the Lord. Now may I say that if you want information concerning the day of the Lord, you have to go back into the Old Testament scripture because there are scriptures, and I won't tell you where they are right now because... 
my memory fails me. I can't tell you which of the minor prophets talk about the day of the Lord. But you will see that the day of the Lord is a day of darkness. It's a day of awful judgment. And the day of the Lord is not one 24-hour period of time, but it is a period of time that begins when God begins again to work with the nation of Israel after the church is removed and the wicked one, the Antichrist, is being revealed. The day of the Lord includes the time of tribulation and the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it brings us right into the day of God, so that the day of the Lord ends into the day of God, or leads into that day. That's why you have the two days mentioned here. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. Now you know that's not a promise by the Apostle Paul concerning the coming of Christ for the church. The day of Christ will not come in that particular way. But the day of the Lord will. And the day of the Lord will go right through the millennial times and right up to the end of the millennium and the destruction of Satan when he gathers together his forces as they want to war against God and against his saints. And then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and that is the day of God. The day of God is the last day to be considered in all the days revealed in the scripture. That's when God is going to be all in all and the Lord Jesus Christ will reign on the new earth throughout eternity. And we in relation to him uh, will not be his uh, bride and we will... Uh, not be the people reigned over, ruled over by the Lord Jesus Christ, but we will be his body and he shall be the head of that body for all eternity. All right, then we find here that uh, what, what is the reason for all of this postponement? We find that God says that these people who had been deluged, not these people, but these spirit beings, the angels that kept not their first estate, but fell with Satan in his fall, when God judged the earth as it was in the very beginning, according to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, and deluged that whole scene, he is saving that whole system of things and all those angels that we read about this morning, and he is just setting them aside until the time of judgment. Now we know that they are going to be judged. And we know as far as the church is concerned, we're going to have a part in that judgment. Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? My, what a wonderful task that's going to be laid on, on the shoulders of the church, the body of Christ. For whatever he will participate in, I am quite sure that as his members of his body, we will participate as well. So what is then behind all of this postponement of the kingdom, which the Lord Jesus Christ promised when he ministered among the Hebrew people, and which the Apostle Peter promised when he told them, in the third chapter that God would send his son in the third of Acts. Well, first we can say that God cannot be controlled by time. So let's forget the idea that it's time for his coming, that we've waited so long and, and so on. We have to remember that according to verse 8 of chapter 3, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You can't confine God to time. God is the eternal being and he doesn't mark time by our clocks or anything like that. His chronology is altogether different. He is eternal. We are the only ones who go according to time. Our days are 24 hours long. And we find that days and nights run into months and months into years and years into centuries and so on. 
but not with God. That's only for us, His creatures, and that's how we have to go according to time. So we can't say it's too late for Him to come or He has postponed His coming. What's a thousand years to Him? A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. He doesn't reckon things by time. And then secondly, if you want to know what's behind the postpone, it is this, that He is not willing that any should perish. In verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering to usward. Now, do you notice it is to usward, that is to those Hebrews. He is not, we often take this and without any explanation we apply it to ourselves. Well, it can be applied to us because God is not willing that any should perish today. And therefore, this dispensation is the longest of all dispensations that have ever taken place in the past or anything longer that will ever take place in the future. The longest in the future will be the kingdom dispensation, which is a carryover from the dispensation of law, really. And so it says, Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And also that verse we read in verse 15, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. He wants these Hebrews to be brought to his saving knowledge of himself. He knows that they became, uh, uh, they fell into apostasy uh, over the years prior to the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also knows that Christ went to the cross. He purchased their redemption. And they don't even appreciate that. But God is allowing years to come in between the declaration of the amnesty of the, the Apostle Peter and the destruction of Jerusalem at 70 AD. And now he is allowing 2,000 years wherein he is having no national dealings with the nation of Israel. They can be saved as individuals, but they have no more priority over God's salvation than anyone else. God is treating all alike, and individuals can be saved, but there's a blindness in part that's happened to Israel. And we find that many of them just cannot see spiritual realities. Their eyes are blinded. And that's because of the apostasy that overtook them in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we find that the book of Revelation is a prophetic preview of the day that we've been talking about, the day of the Lord. You know, in chapter 1 and verse 10, it talks about, the book of Revelation talks about the Lord's day. You have so many people talking about Sunday being the Lord's Day. It's only mentioned once in the Bible, and that's in Revelation 1 and 10. We find that the Apostle Paul never talked about this day being the Lord's Day. When he had an occasion to mention this day, he said, Upon the first day of the week, lay by yourselves in stores, the Lord has prospered you. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1. He called it the first day of the week. In the book of Acts, it says, Upon the first day of the week, Again, it's the first day of the week. It's never called the Lord's Day. Now think of all of those people today who even call it a Sabbath day because they are partially under law. They have accepted the law to be the mode of life for them in this uh, dispensation of grace. And it's just as bad to call this the, uh, the Lord's Day. Now when you read about the Lord's Day in chapter, 10, uh, chapter 1 verse 10 of Revelation, it is a transposing of the words, the day of the Lord. For every chapter in the book of Revelation is a beautiful picture of what the day of the Lord is going to be like. A day of darkness, a day of judgment. 
And we find that it's all in preparation for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given to us in the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, all the way there toward the end. But we might say the first 18 chapters are nothing else but expressions of the characteristics of the day of the Lord. And yet because of the transposing of the words, the day of the Lord, and who can say that the day of the Lord shouldn't be called the Lord's day? What's the difference? You see, if you really think of it right, it can be used in both ways. But now we find Christendom taking that expression and saying that every uh, first day of the week is the Lord's day. And I've used this a thousand times here. Uh, until my eyes were opened to see the rightly dividing of the word of truth. And Paul never uses it, and we have no right to call this the Lord's day. Every day should be the same with us, according, I think it's the 14th chapter of the book of Romans. Every day ought to be a day of light set aside for the honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should not make a difference between the two. If you are living differently on Monday than you do on Sunday, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with us. We should every day seek to honor the person of our Lord Jesus Christ in our life. We should be honest before the world and we should be believers on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, as well as on Sunday. Now, those to whom the Apostle Paul addresses his particular books, we find are members of the body of Christ. And the Apostle Peter, I'll have to hurry through this, the Apostle Peter is saying something about Paul's epistles. He says in verse 15, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our brother, beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking of them all these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Do you know that it's only in the Apostle Paul's epistles where you read honest, straightforward words connected with the eternal security of the believer, such as in chapter 18, uh, chapter 8 of the book of Romans. But when you take some of the expressions that are used, for instance, right here in verse 14, it says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look, uh, look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. You and I are already without spot and blameless. That's our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot forfeit our salvation by the way we walk or by some of the doctrines we might uh, seek to adhere to. It might indicate, of course, that we are not saved at all, that our life, if we really have it, if we have eternal life, you cannot forfeit that eternal life by any attitude on your part or any particular spirit that you might show. And uh, so we find that that's true here. And I would say this, that if you find anything in Paul's epistles that are hard to be understood, it's the same way in finding things in Peter's epistles that are hard to understand. Now, what do I mean by that? Suppose you take as members of the body of Christ, as thousands of them are doing today, maybe millions in the United States of America alone. They go into Peter's epistles and they say, this is written for the church. Peter and Paul had the same message. Their prophetic messages were the same as the same gospel message they had. Now, that's not true. I showed you how that one group was the apostle of the circumcision and the other group was the apostle of the uncircumcision. We find that there is a message of the uncircumcision.
of the uncircumcision, a gospel of the uncircumcision, and a gospel of the circumcision. Those two messages are not the same. Their prophecies are not the same. But if you approach Peter and say, this is for us, you are confused. And you won't be able to understand the language. And if you go to the Apostle Paul and say, that's for the Hebrew church, there's something wrong with your thinking because God never said those things about the about the uh, Hebrew church. He never gave them the positions and the possessions that he tells us about in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and so on. And that's why you'll always find the Bible to be hard to understand if you don't rightly divide the word of truth. And the last thing he wants to do is to drop a word of warning. He says in verse 17, Beware, and there are those things that we could be aware of too, because false teachers are around and they abound, if I were you, if you were sold on a certain type of teaching and you can prove it from the Word of God, stay with it at any cost, regardless of how it might get people mad at you. That's all right. Stay with it at any cost. And the second thing is a little bit of advice in verse 18. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'd almost think that Paul is saying that. But of course, it's everybody's privilege, every believer of any dispensation to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless his word to us and give us the desire to take that advice and to heed the warning. We ask it in the name of the Lord.